our podcast. It comes to us courtesy of the Turo College Jacob D. Fuchsberg Law Center and the Turo Law Review. We're very pleased to have today as our invited guest, Lawrence A. Steckman, Esquire. Mr. Steckman is a practitioner in the area of securities, derivatives, and other areas. He's got an extensive list of litigation, settlement, arbitration, won numerous awards, been listed as a super lawyer, selected as a super lawyer, uh, I believe 10 times. His AVVO award is superb. And we're pleased that he's been able to accomplish so much. Uh, he's also uh, a prolific scholar, uh, basically 50 publications that we know of. And so we invite him today, Mr. Steckman, welcome. Could tell us a little bit more about your background, if you wish, and then tell us whatever advice you may have for students who are seeking jobs and how they might use their own scholarly efforts in that job search. The floor is yours. Welcome. Well, thank you. I'm glad to uh, uh, be able to uh, address uh, your audience. Uh, I am an attorney. Uh, I come to the law uh, somewhat circuitous background. Uh, I'm a classical musician who was pursuing a doctorate in philosophy at Columbia when I took a, a class in the Columbia Law School uh, and found it to be extremely interesting. And I uh, decided to, uh, to go to law school uh, at that time. Uh, I had not published uh, previous to coming to Toro Law School, which at that time was located in Huntington a five minute drive from my house in Cold Spring Harbor at that time. Uh, and in law school, uh, I became very interested in, uh, in producing a publishable uh, work. So um, while I was on the law review, uh, the, the topics of the day were international terrorism, federal securities law uh, and constitutional law. And uh, I decided that I would prepare pieces in each of those areas. Uh, the idea being to try and make a contribution to the literature uh, in those areas, which I think would bring me to sort of the advice I might have to students who might be considering uh, spending a little time uh, uh, writing. Uh, I can tell you that in the uh, two interviews that I had, before I uh, decided which job I was going to take. Uh, the vast majority of my interviews focused on the work that was, I was then working on, specifically securities law, uh, international terrorism and con law. Um, so what I would suggest to people if they're thinking about writing, uh, number one, if you know what area you're interested in, uh, would probably be a really good idea to write on the hot topic within your discipline, because when you get on an interview, uh, people are going to probably want to talk to you about it, and you'll have researched, you know, however many pages you will have read. Particularly if you're arguing fairly novel theories, uh, it's going to make you look like somebody who could make a real contribution to the practice area. Uh, of the person who's interviewing you. Uh, and that was certainly the case. The, uh, the first law firm I interviewed was the largest 
corporate banking firm in the world. The second was the hottest litigation firm in New York at that time. And I think very much because of my writing, both made me offers in three days and I canceled the rest of my interviews. So, you know, I can't, you know, certainly guarantee that that would be uh, what would occur uh, were you to publish, but I can tell you that it does have a lot of advantages. Not only the fact that it might really help you get a job, but you learn a subject matter very, very differently when you're writing a law review article than even when you litigate it uh, as part of your general practice. So for example, I've been practicing for 32 years. I'm publishing a law review with Toro on a case in my, in my area on a theory that I'd never even heard of in 32 years of practice. So the bottom line is you learn things in a very different way when you're working on scholarly literature. Because when you're litigating, you know, what you're really doing is just trying to win the thing. And usually that means looking up a couple of, you know, circuit level cases. And whatever theory seems to fit best, you, you, you will articulate. And if the other side isn't particularly uh, uh, good at what they're doing, you know, they're doing basically the same kind of thing. They're not trying to fully understand the jurisprudential reasons why you have a certain theory. And because that's not the focus, they're not really able frequently to come up with novel solutions to the novel arguments that you may need to present in order to win a case. So in my own view, you know, it, it can be very helpful you know, in you becoming a better lawyer. It's very helpful for you in getting job interviews. And it's generally, I think, better helpful to your own development overall, because the more you understand about your practice area, the more it's gonna allow you to look at other related practice areas and take information from them that you could potentially apply to your own uh, practice area. Now, I speak primarily from the area of litigation because that's what I do. But I would imagine that you would have the same experience in any area where you're really having to develop uh, solutions to you know, problems, uh, whether it's in the corporate sector, securities transactional work, you know, or, or other areas. So, uh, you know, I can tell you the publication has been very helpful to me. And I've gotten several of my largest cases, which have been extremely interesting cases, because people, clients, very sophisticated ones, came in and said, you know, I, by the way, I, I've read a dozen of your articles on this. And then they end up retaining me to try and get them the kind of result they want. So I can't guarantee that, you know, you go write an article and, you know, business pours in the doors. But I can tell you that some of the most interesting cases I've had did arise to me in exactly that way. Well, it, it sounds like uh, there, there is a, a number of kernels of advice. Uh, we may be getting some feedback. The, the, a number of kernels of advice within, within your, uh, your presentation. Uh, obviously you're writing in an area that one, you're interested in working in, and two, that is a, a, a novel topic in that area. But it also sounds to me like if you're going to make scholarship part of your job application, that you should be prepared uh, to have a substantive discussion of it. 
because it sounds like during your interviews, the, the partners interview, interviewing you, they wanted to have a substantive discussion, uh, which you were fully prepared to do. Would that be, be fair to say? Well, I think, that that, I think that that's exactly right. And I will tell you that, you know, when you go for an interview at, you know, at least the kind of firms I was interested in, you know, you're going to have six, seven, eight interviews. A lot of those are going to be by young associates because that's what happens. And those young associates usually are bored with what they're doing and are happy to just be shooting the breeze with somebody. And if you're working on something which is really novel uh, and something that they're interested in, all of a sudden you're in a very, very different position. So for example, the hottest topic at the time I was applying uh, for my first job in the securities area was the Ivan Bosky uh, insider trading case. And the, the theory of the day was that he was gonna get off because there was no way that uh, he had a fiduciary duty and you needed a fiduciary duty under the then Chiarella decision. And so everyone said, the guy gets off. Well, that kind of infuriated me because Ivan Bosky was moving the market by virtue of the size of his transactions. So I decided to develop a number of theories consistent with the legislative history that would allow uh, him to be prosecuted successfully. And I did it by looking at the way the fiduciary concept was supposed to function uh, under the securities laws. And then I argued you needed a functional definition in order that the fiduciary concept could serve its proper function. Uh, ultimately, the SEC found out about the article I was writing and they had people jumping in and on the phone with me talking about this as an alternative to certain then current theories of insider trading. But you know, the idea was to create something, something that was novel, but consistent with the laws that would let the laws do what they were meant to do. And you know, that's gonna be kind of interesting to somebody who's litigating under those very laws in, in transactions that are so large that the markets are being moved by virtue of it. The terrorism article you know, came right after we, uh, the bombing of Libya in response to the bombing of the Lebel disc effect. That was an article arguing that international law as it then exists in the area of international terrorism could not sustain a legal condemnation of the United Nations because the conditions you need to have a legal rule as opposed to a political or an ideological rule did not exist. And I remember citing an unpublished manuscript from a professor at Columbia on that very topic. How do you distinguish legal rules from political or ideological rules and ultimately create a defense of the, of the United States and its actions in response uh, to a terrorist act? So because that was front page news at the time and challenged the legal status of the rules themselves, you know, it ended up being cited right after law school by uh, Judge Weinstein uh, in a decision, a, ma a major terrorist decision in the Eastern District, which was the first time any of my pieces were cited. But it was because, you know, I found it to be, you know, an extremely interesting area. It was very hot. And of course, I ended up spending a lot of time talking about it because people were interested in that topic. It wasn't something purely idiosyncratic to me. This was the hot topic of the day. So if you can do that in whatever your practice area is or that you think it will be, you know, you're gonna be the one who's in there looking like you actually know what you can do. 
And that's going to be very helpful to the chances of securing the kind of position you want as a young associate. Well, uh, I, I, I find that very helpful to both editors and to writers. By the way, I have to laugh. My, my first uh, circuit site, federal circuit site, was Judge Weinstein sitting by designation on the second <laughs> circuit. And I assume it's one of my classmates as his clerk who cited my article. Uh, so I, uh, I I caught a break. But it, I, I think you make another very important point because sometimes when you're an editor, whether you're a faculty editor or a, a journal editor, uh, well, articles can make two sorts of contributions. Sometimes it's sort of the AOR approach of summarizing what's out there. And yes, that has value, but you're, you're, you're certainly not ignoring the need for that to, to lay in that foundation. But then you get to the, the real creative thinking where, I mean, novel doesn't mean anything. It's gotta be tied to the background that you've uh, taken time to construct. But it's the it's the writer's own analysis that can be the most helpful, uh, not only to get that first job, but then later in practice. That's what it sounds to me like you're you're suggesting. Well, that is what I'm suggesting. Remember, I come out of a background in analytic philosophy, which is extremely interesting to somebody like me. I said, but it's really not going to be very helpful to people. And one of the reasons I switched to law is because I really wanted to have uh, an impact uh, more than simply, you know, finding something interesting in my own head. So though the articles I tend to write focus on problem areas where the courts disagree about something uh, and you try and offer some solution uh, about it, the most important thing is you're making a very concrete contribution to the development of the jurisprudence in your practice area. And, and that means it's going to have really strong, big, concrete implications. And because the kind of cases that I you know, have been involved in uh, tend to be very large or involve novel financial instruments or areas where the law is extremely uh, un unsettled. Uh, for example, in the RICO statute, where the law is constantly changing, it's a very fertile ground for coming up with you know, creative solutions to very concrete problems that people are having. And, you know, I'm not interested in writing, you know, philosophy at this point, like publishing philosophy. I'm far more interested in coming up with creative solutions to areas where the law is unclear. Uh, you know, hopefully, you know, by thinking about it a lot, you hope to make a contribution to the law better, fair, and more reasonable. Um, so uh, I certainly would not uh, deprecate in any way the a what you call the ALR approach, and I have published you know a few works, you know that are really more um, you know stating what the jurisprudence is. For example, I you know, I, I penned a, a, an article analyzing the loss causation, which is in securities uh, land. That's like proximate causation applied mm -hmm. to securities cases. Analyzing the developing jurisprudence of causation in securities cases in every federal circuit, analyzing every different theory of causation that was then being uh, articulate in the cases. So 
you know, if you're going to then go litigate a case against uh, somebody or other, and you have that background, if you know every theory because you've already analyzed them all, you're going to be a much more effective uh, a litigator. And an article like that, for example, you know, makes life a lot easier if I'm litigating in the Tenth Circuit. You know, well, here's the, what the Tenth Circuit has to say about the development, and you see the development of the theory. You know, that's going to be an article that's probably going to be pretty helpful to somebody instead of having to jump on Westlaw and, you know, start their researching it uh, from the very beginning. So, yeah, I try and write only on things that are going to be helpful to people who are litigating the kind of things that, uh, you know, I find interesting and, and are my practice area. Well, another aspect of what you're saying that I find interesting, uh, it, it sounds to me like if you take the approach of proposing a solution in an area that you become familiar with, in an area that you're interested in, uh, first of all, I'm not sure a student writer should underestimate their ability to make a contribution. Uh, you know, a, a, a good legal researcher and good legal writer, uh, certainly, regardless of experience, can make a contribution. But then beyond that, I, I also find extremely interesting that as your practice has gotten more and more sophisticated and your writing has continued, it's helped you attract clients even later in your career, which is not something that I think is a particularly well understood uh, phenomenon. Well, you know, I, I, you know, I'll give you a couple of examples. I had a client walk in my office. He was one of the largest traders in synthetic derivatives in the world. He was going synthetic because his transactions were so large, they were moving the world's markets. He came in and said, I read your piece on loss causation. Uh, I, I had a case where uh, someone who was a governor general of a country said, you know, I read probably a dozen of your articles on the RICO statute. You know, you know, uh, similar, you know, I've had similar experiences. You know, not, obviously not everybody that I deal with is like that. But I represent a lot of attorneys, a lot of very um, sophisticated uh, executives, you know, primarily in, you know, corporate and securities litigation, uh, uh, racketeering. So, you know, for some people, that's what they want. They want to see, you know, they're not just interested in, yeah, I went to this big firm or I graduated from such and such a law school. They want to know what you can actually do. And then they come in and they ask you questions, as in those two cases, about the theories of the articles that you published. So, you know, they want to know. And that particularly, you know, that's true with attorneys that you may represent in, in, in litigation. So, uh, but I think what you said is really true. You know, you should not be intimidated to be creative in what you, in what you are finding. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, when I was in law school, we were right, I was writing onto the law review and the topic had to do with attorney silence and its implications under the Sixth Amendment. Well, I researched it heavily and I discovered that about half the cases went one way, half the cases went the other way. There was no way to factually distinguish the cases. So what did I end up writing about? It was clear to me after reading the cases closely that if the courts adopted a particular analytical language with certain semantic presuppositions, all the cases went one way. If you 
asked a different question in different language, all the cases went the other way. So I ended up arguing that this particular body of law, it, it wasn't the merits of the cases that were determining the outcomes. It was the semantic presuppositions of the analytical language that was being adopted by the courts very uncritically. Now, you know, this is, you know, in, in law school, you know, you're not just writing and say, well, this court said this, this court said that. I mean, you're trying to really understand why are they coming out the way they are? And if you look at topics, particularly where the courts disagree with each other or come to outcomes that are, are not explainable in terms of the merits, there's probably something interesting going on that would make a subject of, of a good article. And ultimately, I, I ended up publishing that article. Uh, and it's been cited by commentators. I don't know if it's been cited by courts at this point, but you know, I, I thought that was pretty interesting. And it, it wasn't a topic I really knew anything about when I started, but uh, you know, it, it was kind of a, a fascinating you know, uh, thing to notice in the cases, I thought, because the courts are all trying to, to say, well, we're reaching a conclusion based on the merits, but the truth is they weren't. They thought they were, but then you couldn't explain how all cases broke down half one way, half the other, and yet the analytical language was different between the two subsets of cases, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, uh, I, I would agree. Uh, do, do you think that judges, I mean, certainly judges who cite you in an opinion, you know, an article that you've written, obviously they, they respect the article. Do you think when you're serving as an advocate that the, the judges you're before uh, might be aware of the scholarship and on some level appreciative, whether they can articulate that or not? You know, that's a, that's a hard question. I mean, if you're in front of somebody like, you know, uh, like a Judge Rakoff, for example, who wrote the leading treatise that we all use or did use on the RICO statute, you know, do I think it's likely that he recognized my name? You know, maybe, you know, it's not the kind of thing that, you know, you would say, and I, I also would be, I, I wouldn't be comfortable citing my own work mm -hmm. uh, in a, uh, unless somebody cited me and then I cited the person citing me. Maybe then, you know, I, I would do it. But you know, the answer is I just, I really just don't know how, how much scholarly literature the judges are really looking at. I, I will tell you one anecdote. Uh, I was litigating a case in New Jersey District Court and I, I was retained as special RICO counsel in a, it was an entertainment law case. And uh, when I walked in the door, I happened to notice that the jury box filled up with people. So anyway, I argued the case, which thank God I won from the bench, they dismissed the thing. The judge's clerk came up to me and said, you know, Mr. Steckman, uh, I want to meet you, blah, blah, blah. Did, did you notice the jury box filled up? And I said, you know, I did. He said, you know who those people were? I said, no, he said, those are all the clerks of the court came in to hear you argue. You know, I must say I was completely shocked. And I'm glad I didn't know that beforehand. It would have made me very nervous. But, you know, apparently somebody did some, some research. I don't know if the judge or this law clerk just had a fascination with uh, obscure RICO cases. But, you know, I guess sometimes that does happen, but I have no idea how often it does. Mm -hmm. And that was the only time I can say that, that something like that ever happened to me. Mm -hmm. 
but I, but that is what happened. Well, I, I couldn't believe it, and and actually, I, I do believe it can, at the very least, filter through at times. Uh, as a professor, sometimes uh, with that title, you have a little bit of an advantage, uh, or at least an opportunity. I had uh, there was. Uh, a tort case in California, and eight cases were consolidated. Uh, I was involved in in sort of of counsel on one of the briefs, and the court wanted to hear what I had to say, so they picked one lawyer from each side, and the California lawyers were not happy when the court admitted me pro hoc vici to, to come out there and represent, you know, the eight plaintiffs. Uh, but I attribute that to scholarship. I have no doubt that it inures to your benefit in the minds of judges. Uh, especially uh, when you are talking about the more sophisticated issues, when they really do welcome uh, the sensitive analysis and the in-depth analysis that's required to, in good faith, try to resolve some of these conflicts. Uh, there is no question that there are really legitimate conflicts based on good faith, but nonetheless differing approaches. I imagine resolving those sorts of conflicts or contributing to that brings you a lot of satisfaction. Well, it does. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking um, I had this really fun case uh, that arose out of a takeover of the largest engineering and energy company in Europe. Uh, and I was defending the, the chairman and CEO of the company, but there were all kinds of huge companies that were named and they, they brought uh, the takeover acquire, potential acquirer had brought RICO, RICO claims for various reasons uh, in the state court in New York. So, you know, everybody got up and argued, but then when it went over, to, and we won, and then when it went over to the appellate division, everybody said, Larry, you argue it for everybody. And these were some of the biggest companies in the world. And these are, you know, the lawyers. So, you know, I felt pretty good about that because these guys recognized, you know, there was a limited amount of time when you're on an appeal, obviously. Uh, but I ended up arguing, and I became very close friends with the chairman and CEO as a direct result uh, of, of, you know, knocking out a, a RICO claims against them and ultimately saving the company from uh, being acquired by a, a well-known uh, takeover person. So, you know, it, it's, it's good for your interview. It's good for your presentation before courts. It's good before your peers. And, you know, hopefully uh, it generates clients and it gives you a level of confidence, you know, that when something walks in the door in your practice area, you not only know the basic law, you know why it's there. And sometimes you have to be creative in order to find a way to win a case. Uh, but it's very hard to be creative if you don't really have a strong, substantive uh, a background not only in your own practice area and in procedure, but in related areas, which helps you to analogize and to come up with solutions that you know, hopefully are gonna work, uh, which is better, is good for your client and it's obviously good for you. Well, I think that's really an excellent summary. I, I mean, I'm very pleased that you, you recap uh, the timeline during which it could be helpful from student through all the way through a very experienced practitioner and also articulated the requirements necessary uh, to, to be successful in terms of the level of research and preparation required. Uh, I do wanna thank you for joining us. It's always my very sad duty 
to to bring these to a close as that's the most unfortunate thing the moderator has to do. Uh, but I do hope that uh, this is a type of podcast that can be listened to several times. Uh, get the summary of advice, get the explanation of the advice. Uh, and great thanks to uh, Mr. Lawrence A. Steckman, uh, 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 certainly a noted and, and uh, practitioner and scholar who makes significant contribution. Uh, thank you again for appearing on our podcast. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. And I've been your moderator, Professor Peter Zablowski here at Turo, and I look forward to our next podcast. Thank you. Take care.